Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. Um, I'm Danielle Campaign. I am your American Ambulance Medical Director. I'm happy to be here today with a couple of co-hosts and a special guest. So let's talk about our special guest, Tasha Mulvina. She's one of our paramedics here in American. Hey, Tasha, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you? Great. Thanks for being here. And we have two co-hosts with us, Dr. Sajin Bakta and Dr. Patil Armenian. Today, let's talk about drowning. Who serves a million people in the valley? We do. The brave men and women of the double A are the best at what they do in EMS today. The finest place in the world to be is right here as a part of American's family. Help is on the way. Got a unit and route. No matter the problem, when in doubt, we send them out. Sure as the sunrise, sure as I bust this rhyme, 10 minutes or less. Every call, every time, this is my career path. This is what I do. The double A's, red, white, and blue. Get your call on. Here comes American. Get your lights on. Here comes American. Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on. Here comes American. Get your save on. Go ahead, Tasha, you go first. Where are you from? What uh, what brought you to American? I'm from L.A. County. I worked down there. I worked in Kern, and now I'm up here, kind of moving my way north. Great. Is Fresno your home, or where are you from? From L.A. County. Oh, from L.A. County originally. Moved okay. up here for this job. Oh, awesome. Well, welcome. We're so happy to have you. Happy to be part of American's team. Please tell us your story. Tell us the drowning case. I was working... On an ALS ambulance with, I was a preceptor, a new preceptor. This is only my second intern ever. And we got a call for a drowning. We were about a block away from the call, so I didn't even have a chance to get nervous before we were on scene. And we were the first ones on scene. And I told my intern and my partner to grab our stuff. And I ran to the back of the house. The gate was open. And I saw an older gentleman face down floating in the deep end of the pool. I was a lifeguard in high school, so I knew the adage, reach, throw, row, go. So I did try to reach for him. He was too far away from the edge. There was nothing for me to throw to kind of pull him towards me. There was obviously no boat near a pool. So I took off my radio and took my phone out and some other stuff, and I jumped in the pool, and lifeguard training just kind of kicked in, and I uh, rolled him. And as I was pulling him to the edge, I was checking for breathing and for a pulse. By the time I got him to the edge, my partner and my intern were there and they helped extricate him. And we got him up onto the side and he was pulseless and apneic. So we began CPR. By the time we got around to all of that, we had the fire department on scene. We had a lot of difficulty even applying pads for the cardiac monitor because he was soaking wet. So we were trying to get towels to dry him off and trying to suction his airway because he was full of fluid. We finally got the pads on him and he was in a shockable rhythm and we shocked once and gave one round of epi and we got pulses back and we had about a minute transport time to the hospital so we had no time to even do much else on the way in and as far as I know he's still alive. It's an awesome case with a good ROSC at the end which is fantastic. Thank you. It was probably the coolest thing I've ever done. Great save. And we did do follow-up that he survived. We know that he survived more than 24 hours. That's a huge, huge save on your part. Thank you. Questions from the field. How many people ended up being on the scene and helping you with the code? We actually had PD show up too. They kind of were just handing stuff if we needed it. We had, I think it was two or three firefighters and then me and my partner and the intern. I think you being a previous lifeguard and being so close to that house really helped, I'm guessing, time and 
Um, that's wonderful. All those, see all those things, all those jobs you do when you're a teenager, they come in handy later. You never know. <laughs> all right. So we heard that great case. So um, what's the scoop? Tell us about drowning. There's tons of definitions. Is it near drowning, wet drowning, dry drowning, some kind of drowning? Tell us, Dr. Botka. It's all so confusing. Um, but thankfully, it doesn't have to be anymore. So we used to classify these things as wet drowning, dry drowning, passive drowning, silent, secondary, near drowning, all those things are actually out of the dictionary now. In 2005, the WHO put out a policy um, that says we're just calling all these submersion injuries drowning, and they are fatal, non-fatal, or associated with morbidity. So um, you don't, it's confusing for healthcare providers, it's confusing for the public, um, Really, drowning is respiratory impairment from a submersion event. So that means when your airway is underwater and you have some sort of respiratory um, impairment, that is the definition of drowning. So de- basically, when someone's dying, they're not really dying of their heart stopping. You're kind of dying of like lack of oxygen is what you're saying. So lack of oxygen due to submersion in water. Exactly. So what happens when you're submerged um, Basically, there's a few different steps to drowning. First, you have an involuntary breath-holding reflex, and sometimes that's accompanied by a gasp, and you might swallow a few um, milliliters, maybe 30 milliliters, one ounce of water, um, and then you hold your breath. And after a little while, you struggle between the voluntary and the involuntary reflexes. You're telling your body not to breathe, but at, at a certain point, your body's fighting to breathe. So you open your mouth a little bit, you get some water in your mouth, and you start swallowing water. And your body starts thinking, maybe if I can swallow this entire lake, then I can breathe. <laughs> um, and that happens for a little while. And eventually, you aspirate a little bit more. Um, total volumes that we have found to aspirate is between two and four milliliters per kilogram. That's a typical. Um, so that's like 300 mLs for the average adult. Which is not much. No, that's what I was just thinking. In my mind, it's like gallons, but 300 mLs. I mean, think about that. That's your can of Coke. That's your can of soda. That's right. 300 mLs. Right. That's not much water to take me down. Now I'm scared. Okay, keep going. Sajid. And just that little bit amount of water has been shown to... It's actually the threshold that we think um, is 2.2 milliliters per kilogram. So that's like 150 mLs in a, in a so regular So it's half person. a can of soda. Right. Um, has been like shown... a one-year-old, that's like, what, 25 mLs? Yeah. Just like a little bit. Yeah. So it takes a really small amount to to disrupt the surfactant and the alveolar cells and pneumocytes. So surfactant is the chemical that keeps our alveoli, our airways open. Um, when it comes in contact with water, all that surfactant washes away. Our airways collapse. We're not able to do gas exchange anymore. All of that water causes direct damage to the pneumocytes as well, which causes inflammation and cell death and impairment of oxygenation, which eventually causes end organ damage because none of your organs are getting oxygen. Now, tell me about, so I know they talked about uh, salt water versus fresh water, but that's out now, right? Or is yeah. that in? Or does it, if I drown in the ocean, is it better for me than if I drown in my <laughs> swimming pool? I guess if you could pick where you can drown, where would you advise us to drown? <laughs> Um, so yeah, all of that has changed too. Um, we used to think that salt water was bad and fresh water was better, um, based on these studies that they used to do in dogs where they terribly would just drown these dogs in water. Um, and they were using huge volumes, like 20 to 40 milliliters per kilogram for the dog. And 
at that at those volumes, you can get electrolyte shifts and um, different um, osmolar changes because of the salt content of the water. Um, but with the amount that has actually been shown to cause drowning in humans, we actually don't see that shift. So it's really it doesn't really matter. Um, whether it's salt water or fresh water. Unfortunately, it just takes a little bit. And so it's we... all bad. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so don't drown. That's water my advice. Water is water. Don't drown. Okay. And it doesn't take much. I guess that makes sense why I talk about kids can drown in like a tiny bit of water in a bathtub. And right. I guess that makes sense why it doesn't, right. it's not that much. And we'll talk about it later, but honestly, the best, the best way to treat drowning is to prevent it in the first place. Right. Correct. Now, what about this dry drowning? You know, you hear about the news, you hear about it on podcasts, like, oh, this person had a dry drowning. What does that even mean? I'm going to sit here and I'm going to drown? Like, what's happening? (laughs) Yeah, so actually recently there was a story, I think 2017, there was a little boy in Texas who um, was in knee-deep or calf-deep water and he collapsed in the water and they said he didn't have any water in his lungs and he ended up passing away. And the, the media and healthcare providers alike started calling this dry drowning. Like, how did he pass away if he was in such little water and didn't have air in his lungs? It was like laryngospasm or something? Like right. something with the... Yeah, so that's the the thought. So people, you know, came, have come up with this scientific um, explanation, basically that this uh, breath holding reflex that we talked about earlier, um, as soon as water gets into the airway, um, you can have spasm of your vocal cords and your pharyngeal muscles to try and prevent any water from entering, but that also prevents air from entering. So that causes the same hypoxia um, that drowning would cause. Um, Honestly, uh, these cases have not been shown to be the cause or the laryngospasm has not been shown to be the cause of the hypoxia or the death in these cases. Um, The laryngospasm is pretty rare. It's like one to 2% of these cases that they found. And a lot of these other cases that they think were dry drowning before were actually medical cases that ended up being in the water. So that little boy actually on his autopsy, they showed he had myocarditis, which is the reason he passed out and fell into the water. And the reason why he wasn't trying to breathe in the water was because he was um, dead prior to hitting the water. Right. Oh, that makes sense. But you can see how that could confuse the average person because you'd say, oh, he's in the water. And of course, he's going to, he's drowning, not that something else is taking him out. Definitely. And then there was also this concern that, oh, I didn't get any water in my lungs, but two weeks later, I might have a dry drowning event. And that has been really shown to not be true as well. God, thank you. That That's really uh, good information there. And um, what about this? Um, th- that's the secondary drowning? Right. Is- yeah, that's what I'm uh, referring to. So there are these cases of people um, two weeks out having some sort of complication, and they're trying to figure out, was this because of the drowning? Did they have this dry drowning event that caused some hypoxia and some delayed um, issues? But uh, that has been shown to not be the case as well. Um, typically, we recommend transport for all of these patients because we observe them in the emergency department for up to eight hours. Um, that's because the data from thousands of uh, drowning cases has shown that if we observe them for eight hours, we kind of see typically whether they're going to get better or get worse. And if they get worse, we keep them in the hospital for longer monitoring. And if they get better, then they tend to not do worse after that. And we're talking about better and worse, mostly because the hypoxia and the chest x-ray and their work of breathing, right? Did, right. You know, Dr. Amin, do you do anything else when you obs them in the hospital? No, just really watch them, make sure that we're checking their oxygen levels on the O2 sat monitor. And if they start feeling worse at eight hours, we get another x-ray and see where they're at. 
Yeah, so it's like one x-ray initially, one x-ray eight hours later. Um, now, for the paramedic, I think you have the challenge if you have someone who has like a, a drowning episode, your parents rescue the kid, and then they say, oh, my kid's breathing fine, I don't want to go to the hospital. What would be your guys' advice that you would want that medic to share with that parent to talk to them into coming? So if if I were if I were faced with a situation where, a, you know, a parent, let's say, does says, you know, my kid looks fine, we don't want to go in, I would insist that they really go to the hospital um, for monitoring because really they should be watched for eight hours. And, um, and I think it's better to err on the side of caution for them to be watched for eight hours in a monitored setting with, you know, all the, you know, proper equipment around um, instead of leaving them at home. Right, like they don't have a pulse ox at home. They don't have a chest X-ray. Um, I always like to take and um, share with the medic and share with the family that what time is it? So this is 5 p.m. at night. That kid's going to go to bed. Right? So you can't really stare at your child for eight hours. You're going to go to bed. So something bad could happen overnight if they got hypoxic during the middle of the night. So this way, it's like always advise them to bring them in because, like we said, in eight hours, they could get worse. Yeah, and this is one of those calls where if they're still insistent, like, no, we don't want to come in, they'd be, okay, well, let's – get on the radio with our base hospital physician and I would get the physician on the line to talk to them and discuss it with them. Perfect. Um, now let's go through um, the ABCs or talk about like if, uh, you know, what's our protocol talk about with drowning? So first and foremost uh, is scene safety. A lot of these events happen in public areas, public pools or, or the beach or <laughs> pool parties where there's a lot of people around and Tasha is amazing and she did an amazing thing um, jumping into the pool herself. You always have to remember that you as the medic can't treat anybody if you're injured or hurt or and you can't treat anybody if the scene is not safe. So uh, make sure you're always um, clearing the scene and making sure that the scene is safe for you. And before you even do those things, uh, lifeguards are taught um, I think Tasha mentioned this earlier too. Uh, reach, throw, row, and then go. So you're actually doing things to try and get the person out without actually physically going into the water first. Um, and then you kind of go as a last resort. Now, I had a question. I certainly I think of drowning. I think of young people. I think of drunk people. And I think of kids. Um, but then there was a study I read out of uh, Japan in resuscitation was published in 2019. Talked about the mean age of um, people drowning was 72, which fits with Tasha's story. You know, she had the, the gentleman with dementia who was elderly who drowned. What do you guys think about that? I always thought it was just kids and drunk people. In the one to four year old age group, drowning is the number one cause of traumatic death. Um, and also, just to go back to the that study, it was done in Japan where their mean age is a lot older than the United States. So that could have been a part of it. I think the key thing is to remember that you're not just drowning because you can't swim, but you might be drowning because you have another medical condition or that you're just super intoxicated. I mean, most adult cases are really because they're drunk, right? Right, right. Um, so let's say you get one of these cases. Are we supposed to put them in C-spine precautions? I just, I feel like C-spine precautions are changing now. And so I don't really know what's the answer to this. I think in general, our pre-hospital C-spine protocols have been changing for the last few years. I think we're, um, for most cases, we're moving away from rigid C-spine for routine use. And the same is true with drowning. Um, so after studies of thousands of submersion victims, really a really small percentage, less than half a percent um, ended up having any meaningful C-spine injuries. 
And these all occurred with an obvious mechanism. So either there was a car crash that led to a submersion or there was a diving in shallow water. All those things, um, hopefully you can get from the history um, by bystanders or from scene, uh, observing the scene. Um, but routine use of the C-spine management is actually probably a hindrance to you as you're trying to manage their airway and get enough people on scene and help with CPR if that's necessary. Um, so routine use is not recommended. Yeah, and I think, Saad, you brought up that great study. It was done in uh, 2001 in Journal of Trauma. It had 2,000 submerged victims. So that's a lot of victims. They all had massive trauma, like MVCs, and only 11 of them had C-spine injuries. So the Tinko point is that more relaxed C-spine policy of SEMSA is a good one. You don't need to put them all in C-spine unless it's like an MVC or I think of a history of diving, something that you really suspect it. Mm-hmm. But if it's just drowning, no C-spine. Now, sometimes you see in like movies, they're trying to do like Heimlich maneuver and stuff to get all this water out. Is that <laughs> is that a thing? <laughs> Definitely not. Unfortunately, all those okay, things good. probably just cause <laughs> you to aspirate even more and cause more airway damage. So um, it's really not recommended to do any of those things either. I think now if you were choking on your hot dog, we were sitting in the pool and then you drowned, <laughs> then you got to relieve the obstruction. But otherwise, no Heimlich, straight straight to airway, uh, the ABCs. Uh, right. So actually, in this case, um, it's one of the few times that we actually care about airway, you know, just as or even more importantly than the circulation part. So um, when we're doing our assessment, we're giving two rescue breaths right away as opposed to checking for a pulse and immediately starting CPR. Um, so... Tasha mentioned that she's checking for a pulse while she was in the water. Um, and you can even give rescue breaths while you're in the water. And then once you get to the edge of the water and you're on dry ground, you can start CPR if they don't have a pulse. So this is truly like an ABC scenario. Right. Sometimes we do like CAB, but right. this is an ABC kind of scenario. Right. You know, let's go back really quick to Tasha's story about how she said that when she, uh, he was in V-fib arrest. So what do you guys think about that? I'm nervous shocking wet people. I like, mean, yeah, I, I would, I would try as hard as possible to dry them off first. It sounds like fire was like bringing towels and stuff. And yeah, you really have to try to dry them off first. I don't I even know if your pads will stick when they're wet. No. So right. I think that would be a problem. And yeah. the water actually will dissipate your shock. So it won't transmit all the energy to the cardiac tissue. Perfect. I'm guessing it's V-fib arrest from hypoxia. So as soon as you can get the oxygen going, they actually might pop out of V-fib and get rust sooner. Yeah. So it sounded like she had done both, right? She was working on the airway and then shocked him. Right. Yeah, I think she did everything in the right order. So in the in the ER, we have a phrase that you're not dead until you're warm and dead. Now, that really applies to drownings, though, right? I mean, does it matter what temperature water uh, somebody drowns in? Yeah, like if I drown at the lake up in you know high altitude versus if I drown in my backyard pool when it's 110 outside and the pool's 80 degrees. Yeah, honestly, we should assume that all drowning cases are hypothermic um, until proven otherwise. Uh, typically... The protocol says that all rivers, lakes, and basins, and canals, and um, all those uh, water entities should be considered cold water. And for drowning, we consider cold water less than 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, So that's important because we actually continue to resuscitate, not only initiate, but continue resuscitation, even if their downtime is up to one hour. Um, In the warm water cases, uh, we may be able to cut that down to maybe about 30 minutes. Um, But still, I think we should consider all these cases um, hypothermic until proven otherwise and and continue resuscitative efforts for at least an hour. 
And then at the Regional Trauma Center, you know, at SCRMC, we do have ECMO, um, mm-hmm. which is extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, which is a kind of very invasive thing that we can do with bad drowning cases where, you know, the, the machines basically take over and breathe for them. So in a young patient that's, you assume a cold water, definitely bring them in. You know, you're kind of extending that time. You're not calling them at the scene and you're, uh, you know, we have um, options there. So let's do take home points. What are the things we really care about? Dr. Armenian, what do you really care about? What do you want them to take home today? I mean, I think the key is that airway is your number one thing. Um, if you successfully, you know, get a drowning victim out of the water or they're already out of the water, you're going to initiate rescue breaths first and then kind of move on to the rest of your ABCs. Yeah. Dr. Bhaktika, what's our take home points? I think we should be transporting all of our patients. They need to be observed for uh, at least eight hours so that we can monitor their respiratory status and oxygenation status. Um, so please bring them to the hospital. Perfect. And my take on point is to hit home to the scene safety that sometimes if you're at a large water park or you're in a large lake and you're all by yourself, so you sometimes you need to wait for backup to rescue that person. Tasha did an amazing job. She was in a very safe area. She had the skills to get in. But uh, just remember, you don't want to become part of the emergency. So do protect yourself. Thanks, everyone. Thank you guys Thank for you. all that you do. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. The theme song for the show is written and performed by Roshan Roach. The beats were created by Young Pear and Brett Schoenwald. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.